0: Hello, War College listeners. It is I, your humble host, Matthew Galt. It is Thanksgiving week, so I am running a rerun. This is a blast from the past. It's from the old Reuters days. I think this was the first episode that I actually tackled solo. Uh, It's got a nice, you know, foul theme to go with Thanksgiving. I'm going to talk to Mary Roach about some of the weirdest inventions of the U.S. military, including a gun that fired frozen turkeys and frozen chickens... If you want to know why such thing was invented, well, you'll just have to listen to the episode. We will be back next week. We're going to be talking with Shadi Hamid about America's relationship with Saudi Arabia. And after that, we will have a look at the life of war correspondent Marie Colvin. Thank you so much and enjoy Thanksgiving.
1: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
0: Are there currently any people making use of military maggots? Medicinal military maggots? I just wanted to say that. That was, that was all that question was about, really.
1: <laughs> what would soldiers need kitty litter for? And why does the military consider flies to be a mortal threat? And what, for heaven's sake, is a chicken gun? This week on War College, we're talking about some of the weirder aspects of outfitting an army and the science of keeping soldiers in the field. Matthew Galt had to take on the sole hosting duties because I was called away for breaking news. But uh, I think this show is fantastic.
0: Hello, and welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Uh, We're talking today with Mary Roach, who is a science writer. Her newest book is Grunt, the Curious Science of Humans at War. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for talking to me. So you've previously written about corpses, the afterlife, sex, the elementary canal. What drew you to the military?
2: Well, I'm always writing about the human body and some way or another, a few years back, I was reporting a story in India on the hottest chili pepper in the world, arguably hottest chili pepper. Uh, the Indian defense Ministry I learned had weaponized the chili pepper, which appealed to me. I thought that was a fascinating twist on an otherwise kind of straightforward food type of story. So I went over to the lab where they 'd done that, and i while I was there. Uh, learned about a bunch of other projects. They were working on a leech repellent. A leech repellent. I found that kind of fascinating. So that kind of planted the seed here that there were uh, there were facets of military research that had never occurred to me. That it, you know, it's a, don't get coverage. It it was this sort of a broader, more esoteric undertaking than one might imagine. And so then when I got home. I started looking into it a bit, and, and you know that that's sort of how I went down that road. I don't have any background reporting on the defense industry. I'm not a tech writer. It was definitely the human side of it that interested me. So that's how it happened.
0: How had they weaponized the chili pepper?
2: It, basically, it was a like a pepper spray. It was just only a a uh, homegrown kind of locally sustainable version <laughs> of a of a pepper spray. It was a powder that they put in a sort of a, it would just sort of explode. It was an exploding chili powder just for dispersing a mob, you know, your typical non-lethal weapon rather than a spray. It was a, an explosion, but alas, the chili pepper bomb was, uh, the, the powder was uh, prone to mildew. So it didn't last well in the storehouses in India. So that, it never went anywhere, but it was just a, a project. They, they made some prototypes and they, they didn't I mean yet yeah, you don't see it used much.
0: Uh speaking of strange weaponry, I really enjoyed the anecdote that you open up the book with. Can you tell us about the chicken gun?
2: Yeah, sure. The chicken gun. The chicken gun, it's a heavy artillery piece that fires thawed out defrosted supermarket chickens and it's firing them at pieces of jets like the 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 canopy, you know, the wind the the windscreen or or the wing or whatever engine to be sure that whatever component of the jet or plane is going to withstand bird strike bird strike being you're in a plane or a jet and you hit a bird uh, which sometimes uh, brings down a plane more often it just causes a lot of damage but sometimes it does cause a plane to go down so the chicken gun mm, fires these chickens and and uh, there's a Tremendous amount of work that went into the chicken gun. There were people advocating that you use actual birds. There were people saying, no, we need to build a simulated generic bird. But there's a lot of discussion on what, what do you use, which which bird and what shape and would it have wings and what would you do? And in the end, they, they went with something that would be reproducible and cheap, which is a supermarket chicken, which is a weird choice in that chickens don't fly or never being hit by planes. Kind of a worst case scenario, the supermarket chicken.
0: Do you have any idea what the rationale was behind using a supermarket chicken? Was it just that that was the easiest one to, easiest thing to find?
2: Yeah, uh, I think that it's just easiest to have a stockpile of you know frozen chickens rather than to, to have live chickens and then slaughter them yourself and yourselves and load them in. I think it was just easier to, uh, to have a frozen chicken that you, fl- that you thaw out. So but there you know it's it's not it's not ideal because there's also the there is the feathered bullet phenomenon uh, uh which is kind of what it sounds like it's a small bird that if it hits the right way can pierce a uh, a canopy uh, in a way that a larger bird like a turkey vulture would not so it kind of we could you know then hit the pilot the feathered bullet phenomenon so of course a supermarket chicken does not simulate that possibility so so whatever you do it's a it's a bit of a compromise but that's science for you
0: it's full of compromises
2: well it's you know you 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 do the best you can to approximate a situation that is quite varied i mean there's all different kinds of birds that hit planes and there's different you know materials that they're hitting so it's uh, you're trying to create a one-size-fits-all approach in testing
0: All right. So what was the favorite thing that you discovered while you were researching and talking to people?
2: A favorite thing that I discovered? Well, I well, uh, this was when I was reporting it a couple of years back. They were just starting to do the they were doing some cadaver work, working out which arteries to reconnect to transplant a penis. And that was I mean, I had no idea that was underway. And it was, you know, for me, because, uh, you know, Stiff was my most popular book. It's always I'm always excited if I could bring some cadavers into a book. Uh, for the stiff fans who always are clamoring for stiff too, um, so that was a, that was a, a surprise and fascinating to to be there working working out how it's done. The very first efforts
0: you're, you're kind of touching on one of the things that I think was really fascinating about the book. I don't think people realize how much military science is a precursor to civilian science.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's it, it particularly. In the medical field, um, whether it's transplants or prosthetics or or emergency trauma care, like tourniquets and, and, you know, you've got a a window of a a couple of minutes if someone's bleeding from an artery, a large artery, um, or if their lung is pierced and the pressure's building up outside the lung, air is filling up the... The, that space outside the lung. And I mean, you've got to get in there, like relieve the pressure, put on an occlusive bandage, do it fast. So in terms of doing surgical procedures on the run or in the air, that there's been a, an amazing amount of work done in those areas. And also the Navy's always looking at uh, developing vaccines for, they're looking at one now for norovirus, for ETEC, which is a form of E. coli that causes pretty bad traveler's diarrhea. So there's a lot of and, you know, and and dysentery and diarrhea used to kill you know four times as many troops as bullets and bombs in the 1800s. It was I mean that's how you that's how you were likely to die in in combat was from disease, not from somebody else's gun.
0: Right. The subtitle of one of your chapters is I, I think I'm, I may butcher this, but diarrhea is a na- is a threat to national security.
2: Yeah, that's right. And it's, I, I have that subhead because I specifically talked to people in special operations. And they're the ones that aren't eating on large bases where the food these days, unlike 100 years ago, the food is safe and the water is treated. But if you're a special operations person who's out in a small village in, say, Somalia, trying to blend in with the local population, you're eating goat that's probably not been refrigerated as well as it might, a lot of flies, uh, water that is not up to the standards of uh, uh, an army base or, you know, the United States. So there's a tremendous amount. I mean, the rates of diarrhea during uh, the peak of the Iraq conflict were 77 percent of deployed personnel had diarrhea, 40 some percent bad enough that they sought medical help Uh, at 32 percent. This is a statistic that really gets me. Thirty two percent had a situation where they couldn't make it. To a toilet on time, so you know, and, and the rates are far higher in special operations. So I was interested just in talking to some of these guys about that. And uh, and I say I'm a, a, you know, a threat to national security. I mean, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but there, you know, there's scenarios where if you're, you know, you're doing a special operations mission and you're hit with extreme gastrointestinal urgency. I mean, you just have to keep going. You know, it's sort of a matter of life or death, and you're. You know, if if you're going in to clear a compound or to kill somebody or whatever it is that your special operations people are doing, there are small units nobody's going to cover for you. Once the mission starts, you keep going. So you can imagine severe cramping and diarrhea being a pretty awful thing to have happen. So I was over in uh, Djibouti at Camp Lemonnier with a a diarrhea researcher who was testing a one-dose regimen, a much faster treatment for bacterial diarrhea.
0: What other kind of stuff are they looking at to combat diarrhea? Uh, you know, this may sound inane or embarrassing, but are there are there combat diapers? Like, it seems like that would be an easy way, an easy kind of solution.
2: Well, there's there are combat diapers, but that term applies to not to anything for diarrhea, but for a uh, well, blast diaper is the better, uh, more commonly known name. That's that's for. Um, if an IED goes off, it's a protection against mostly against the, this blast of dirt and debris that's traveling at very high speed and hitting you. So there, there, it's that's an add-on body armor component. But diapers, no, nobody's wearing diapers. There are some people that, uh, like before a high-risk critical mission, uh, would take Imodium, like just to shut. Which is, you know, you don't really want to be taking modium if you don't know you're going to need it. But, but that's something uh, people do. The, they, the special operations people that I talked to uh, said, you know, you'd pack a bunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and and you use Ziploc bags. And then the Ziploc bag, they bring kitty litter because it's very absorbent. So uh, if you have to, you know, if you have to go, you go, you use the kitty litter. He said, you know, there's enough requisitioning of kitty litter that some there was someone in special operations command was like why are we requisitioning kitty litter what is going on Uh, but you would put that in the bag that you used for your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and that becomes your in the field or in the hole or wherever you are toilet
0: i really enjoy how kind of gross this conversation is this is not this is not our normal war college (laughs) war college fair and i'm kind of loving it uh so let's let's keep this going i want to talk about flies um there was way more yeah. information about flies in this book and flies pertaining to the military than I ever thought possible um, so can you tell us a little bit about how flies can be detrimental and also sometimes a positive on the battlefield? Sure
2: well, flies uh, when you look at yeah. a battlefield from a hundred years ago, you had uh, a bunch of people out in a field, open pit latrine, a mess tent that wasn't well screened, no refrigeration so this is a setup for huge numbers of people getting serious food poisoning because the flies, being flies, they land on the stuff in the latrine, the crap, they get it on their feet. The fly is called a mechanical vector. It picks up pathogens on its feet and then it goes over to the food. It lands on the food and now it inoculates the pot of beans or whatever you're you're making with these pathogens. They're then sitting in the sun because there's no refrigeration unit. So they're, they're multiplying at an exponential rate Uh, By the time the food is served a few hours later, everybody's getting hit. Uh, So diarrhea, dysentery, food poisoning, cholera, that's why so many people died. Uh, That's why there were such huge numbers of of deaths um, in conflicts before you were on a base that was, you know, that had a dining facility that was air conditioned where you could seal it. There are no flies. Now there's no flies. It's not an issue in a big on a big base, but it it used to be a huge issue. So flies were, you know, in World War II, there were units. In North Africa, the flies are particularly aggressive in the desert. And uh, it was such a problem. Also bodies, you have bodies, you know, that's another flies landing there and, you know, laying eggs, et cetera. That was, you know, dead bodies are also contributing to the issue. And so they, were, they started having fly control units, like soldiers specifically dedicated to fly control. There was... Uh, one, uh, battle, the Battle of El Alamein. I may not be pronouncing that right, in North Africa in World War II where they had a fly death quota. Everyone had to go kill every day. I think it was 50 or 100 flies. Uh, so it, was, it was that much of a problem. The upside to the fly, uh, this this is something that came out in World War One. There was a surgeon named William Bear who was uh, part of the expeditionary forces in France and he noticed there were a couple of soldiers who were brought in who'd been lying out in the field uh, in the brush and they were brought in with big big wounds the wounds were as wounds will be uh, when you're lying out in the open they were infested with maggots and bear and his staff uh, cleaned out the maggots thinking you know this is horrific it's going to Cause infection, and we cleared out the maggots. He noticed that there was this healthy pink tissue growing. There was absolutely no infection, and he saw this over and over, and began to suspect that the maggots they perform a natural debridement. And that is to say, the maggots selectively eat dead tissue. They don't want to eat live tissue. They want to eat the dead tissue, and that is. What debridement is, you're getting rid of the dead tissue to make way for the living tissue. The dead tissue, that doesn't have a blood supply, so bacteria can set up housekeeping because the immune system isn't going to, there's not any blood getting to the dead tissue, so it encourages infection. So you want to keep the dead tissue out of there. You want to get rid of it. So, and debridement is done surgically more typically, but it, the maggots do a lovely job of it. And the maggots, maggots are, maggot therapy is still used today you can get a prescription for maggots there's a company called medical maggots there's a medicare reimbursement code for maggots and a dosage and little cage dressings to keep the maggots where they should be and not have them stray so it's a uh, it's used mainly today in uh, diabetics who get these foot ulcers that are very slow to heal and the uh, the maggots encourage healing they also they seem to fight infection too um maybe by secreting something it's not entirely clear exactly what they're doing but they prevent infection so the maggot has kind of a dual role in the military
0: are there currently any people making use of military maggots medicinal military maggots i just wanted to say that that was that was all that question was about really (laughs)
2: I don't blame you. I, I like saying I like saying chicken gun, and I like saying medical maggots. There's a a, a lovely med, uh, military entomologist at Walter Reed. Well, he's no he's no longer there. He's moved on. But when I was reporting the book, he was there. George Peck, a, a big booster of maggots, uh, a man who loves the maggot with all his heart. He was he, he was trying to he was advocating a return to using maggots because with some with I E particularly with I E D injuries. It's a buried explosive, so it's blasting this dirt and debris, which is full of bacteria and fungi, and, and it's blasting that deep into the wound. Kind of the tissue is blown away from the bone, this dirt gets in, and then the tissue comes back down. So there's a, it's very hard to, to keep the wound from being infected and to get all of that stuff out. So he, he was advocating a return to maggots, but it's, it's an uphill battle because maggots are, let's face it, kind of gross. And if they escape, they want to go pupate and become flies, and nobody wants flies in a hospital setting for all the reasons that we, were, I was just talking about before. They can spread infection, so uh, it there there isn't much use of maggots in certainly not in the field. You know, if it, it's, uh, it's it's debridement is done surgically, and, and that's much faster. Maggots it takes days. You have to change the maggots. You're only going to leave them in a few days because otherwise they want to go pupate somewhere and they want to leave. So you've got to put in a new batch. So it's time consuming and you have to have people who know how to do it. So it's, it's not easy to set up a, a medical, <laughs> medical maggot therapy program. It's mainly uh, in clinics for diabetics and it, and you know, and it, 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 it's, they're great because you, the alternative sometimes is amputation. So the people who have the maggots are pretty you know because you'd think they'd be kind of horrified, but they're in fact happy to have a possibility of saving the limb
0: no so at the at the moment, medical maggots are a little bit more trouble than they're worth
2: for for y- your typical um injury where you can go in and just surgically remove just sort of like you know, maggots are very you know they're going they're very tiny and so they're with their little mandibles they're very thorough, but it takes a long time whereas you can just go and like cut the heck out of that stuff and you know just sort of do a a broader blunter approach surgically than you would with
0: maggots um i'm gonna change tracks here just a little bit uh as much as i am enjoying talking about maggots (laughs) uh you and me both (laughs) you you encountered a lot of kind of bizarre baroque military bureaucracy in this book and i felt like you were grinning as you were describing the, the the titles of these reports um, and I um, I'm trying to think of the specific examples like the four hundred seventeen page report that's all about sweat. And I think that most Americans think of the you know the Pentagon's bureaucracy and they see it as a negative. Um, and this is the first time that I'd ever seen I ever felt like maybe all this research and this thoroughness and this you know like all the different conversations that were had that they had to have to come up with the chicken gun, right. It feels like this stuff is actually getting us somewhere. Uh, and i was wondering what what your thoughts on that were
2: yeah I, I i think that when you start to look into what actually happened what lies behind the 400 page document you start to see that there are reasons beyond just the fact that the military is a large lumbering bureaucracy which is true um but that there are you know like with the, the chicken gun like just the amount of time it took to figure out you know what is you know, what's the best thing to use and how do we we're, how do we build a system to launch the chickens and how do we mimic the exact, uh, you know, sp- the, the exact impact that you would have? And, you know, is the bird going, you know, does the bird flying in the same direction as the plane? In fact, it is. And that's part of the problem that the, the bird is they both take off into the wind, just like you start to realize there's a whole world of science involved in how a plane comes to hit a bird. And so it sounds like just how dumb is that? Just throw a chicken at a plane. What is the big deal? Why do you need to? It's like why do you you know why do you need to go through all this trouble and why 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 was so much time and money spent? But then like anything else, when you start to study the phenomenon, you see that it's really complex. And in order to make something that's worth making, you have to factor in all these things. And and, and that appeals to me as a writer just just the uh, the 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 amount of all the complications that lie below something that seems just simple and you know because nothing's simple when you
0: kind of get into it like earplugs you think earplugs are simple
2: yeah like earplugs exactly you think uh, yeah like hearing loss in the military you figure well okay there's loud noises there's bombs and there's guns firing uh so give them some earplugs what's the big deal in fact it's when you're in the military uh, you know, situational awareness is a big deal. If you're, uh, well, you want to be aware is somebody, is somebody, char- you know, charging a rifle near you? Is it, is there a, an SUV coming up behind you on a street on gravel? Uh, if you, if you can't hear that because you're wearing hearing protection, lest there be a firefight that breaks out, uh, you, you're now, at, you're risking your life. You're in danger. So most, Soldiers would rather save their life than save their hearing. And the, the other thing with loud noises in the military, you know, setting aside transportation noises, which are significant, you know, helicopter and troop transport vehicles, the things that are really loud that really damage your hearing are not things you can prepare for. You can't. You don't. You can't go. Okay, there's going to be some. I mean, if you're the one initiating, sure, you you could prepare for it. But things t- tend to start happening abruptly and without warning, and, and you're not going to go around with earplugs in all the time because it's or or earring or cuffs over your ears because it's hot and uncomfortable and because you can now can't talk to people and hear what's going on. On a foot patrol you're walking far apart because of the killing radius of a grenade. You know, everybody has to be separated lest one grenade take out three people instead of one. So you're far apart. You want to be able to converse with somebody. So there's a lot of reasons why soldiers don't want to just be wearing earplugs all the time. And for that reason, you know, they're, they often they're not wearing them when a bomb goes off or, or when a firefight breaks out, and then they end up with hearing loss because with with a, with a bomber or a, or a rifle, uh, the, the decibel level is high enough that, that a sp- split second exposure can cause hearing damage. Whereas in a helicopter, you've got uh, you, you know you've got some some time you can be exposed without incurring any hearing loss. But but something as loud as a A bomber or a rifle will cause, you know, one exposure can do it. So, hey, so it's kind of a conundrum. That's why they've got these very cool things called TCAPs, Tactical Communication and Protection System, which is incoming noise. It knows whether if it's loud, it, it dampens it. And if it's quiet, it amplifies it. So, and they're, it's like having bionic hearing. It's pretty cool. There's also a mouthpiece for wireless communication between members of the unit or a helicopter overhead or someone back on base. So it'd be great if everybody had those right now. Not everyone does, you know, special operations, of course, has those. So, yes, it seems like it'd be pretty straightforward. It's loud. There's loud noises. Give them hearing uh, earplugs. But it's not that straightforward.
0: Right, because it's the, that loss of hearing seems to be. The soldiers that experience it—that's the thing they miss the most, even if they have other injuries.
2: That's what that. Yeah, someone someone mentioned that to me. That it was because it interfered with his ability to talk with his family, to or to you know to be in a restaurant and have a conversation. Just you know, a, it doesn't have to. You don't have to be deaf. You just just to have a a moderate hearing loss is incredibly uh, frustrating, and it stays with you
0: changing tracks again like you said people want you to write stiff too and you got you got the opportunity to learn kind of about the autopsy procedures for the american military mm-hmm. i was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah I, I was at the armed forces medical examiner system the the morgue in dover where all of the bodies of soldiers were killed and soldiers and Marines who are killed in, in overseas, come, they come in there and they're autopsied, all of them. And what is what is interesting is that they're autopsied with all of the medical life saving emergency care treatment in place. So, you know, whether it's a tourniquet or an intraosseous IV or a, a, an airway. Um, so, the, all of that is left in place. And then what happens is every month there's something called a combat mortality conference. And at this teleconference, which takes place—well, it's a teleconference, so it takes place virtually—you have the the people in Dover, the medical examiners who did the autopsy, and they are talking case by case with 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 the bodies on the on the screen on a slide. There's the medical examiners who are talking to the emergency care providers the the you know the medics or the navy corpsmen or and or the hospital people who did the care when they arrived at the hospital and they talk about you know the the equipment was it used properly was it placed properly was there anything that could have been done differently just giving them feedback right away to say you know this is what happened with this death this is what we saw when we did the autopsy so It's kind of a great example of of the feedback getting directly to where it needs to go uh, rather than waiting to write a paper that will then be published two years later in an emergency medical journal. Uh, It's a way to just get the information to the people who need it quickly, uh, which is a great model for the military, because a lot of times there's there just is this disconnect between the men and women who are doing the fighting and getting injured and then. The policymakers and the, the you know the, the the people in the back in the U.S. who need to know this information. You know how do you get the information to the people who can really use it? So that's what I was uh, reporting on that program, which is called uh, Feedback to the Field.
0: All right, Mary, I've got one more question for you. Yeah. How did writing this book change the way you viewed the American military?
2: Well, I had a sense because I'm an complete outsider to this world. I had a sense of just the military as this monolithic entity. And and as happens when you step into any kind of research into something, whether it's the chicken gun or the military, you begin to see how complex it is and that there's all these separate facets of it. So I'm, I was in a world of people who I admired tremendously, the people who are uh, the scientists, the medical people and the researchers who really, you know, they're trying—they're trying to do something good, and they're, you know, they're doing it within a frustrating bureaucracy, and sometimes uh, things move too slowly, and there's miscommunication. But they themselves were—they were really impressive, smart, funny, dedicated people. So that they are kind of my sense of the military now. Uh, and so, you know, I don't—I'm not a fan of war, and I'm less of a fan of war after this book. But I am a fan of these people and and the work that they do. So um, I have a lot of respect for them. So, you know, I guess you could say in that sense, I have a much better feeling about the military than I did going into the book.
0: All right. Thank you so much for talking to us, Mary. The book is Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. And it's pretty incredible.
2: Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of War College. We've started to hear from some people with podcast ideas, and we're going to see what we can do to actually make the episodes. You can hit us up with your own ideas or other comments on Twitter. We are at war underscore college. We'd also love it if you'd make us a regular part of your week by subscribing to the show. We're available everywhere your favorite podcasts are sold, iOS or Android. War College was created by me, Jason Fields, and Craig Heddeck. Matthew Galt co-hosts the show, but that undersells all the work he really does. This week's episode was produced by Bethel Hopte, whose ears are so sensitive, she thinks I'm shouting right now.